Amen. And amen and amen and amen. Well, whatever's going to happen this morning must be powerful because I hardly slept last night. <laughs> Not because of the Spirit. It was just some other things going on. And it was like I woke up this morning and everything in my body told me, I already had Pastor Ray ready. Don't, don't come, you know. Well, that gets me mad. When my body or something starts telling me, don't do something, there's a stubborn German in me, my wife will tell you, that just says, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to launch into it and trust God. So there's something God has for us today. We started a series last week on, on uh, it's called Spirit, Soul, and Body. It's mainly designed to, uh, don't get your notes out for that because we're not going there this morning. Uh, it's designed to make you aware of who you really are on the inside. And as I was getting ready for this uh, this week, and especially on Friday, uh, remembering that it's, we're celebrating the Lord's table today, something went off in me. And so we're going we're gonna to look at the, at the Lord's table today because that's what we're going to celebrate today. And, and too often we've done here at least, you know, we kind of tag it on the end of a service. And, and that's not what it's intended to do. And for a year or so we spent time whenever we had a communion table, we, I, I devoted the message to that. And we haven't done that for a, a little while now, but, but I really felt there's something in this. And we're going to kind of find out what this is together. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul is here. Uh, in this letter, of course, he's, he's addressing issues in this church that he started, and he's correcting them about some things. And one of the keys to understanding what's going on in here, because in most of Paul's letters, the book of Romans is an exception, Paul is addressing a letter to churches, or in some cases to individuals, and he's addressing issues that he knows about. Sometimes it's an encouraging them, sometimes it's correcting them, uh, whatever it may be. But out of that, the Spirit of God, has we glean from that the truth that we need to know from that. So it does help to know the context. This is a letter written to a church that was very carnal. They were very spiritual. The spiritual gifts were flowing in tremendous abundance. The ch- next chapter, chapter 12, talks about that and gives, to give them understanding of it. But, but there were a number of things that they, because they were carnal and we're going to talk about that in the other series, because they were carnal, they were, they, were, they were just doing things out of their flesh. They were doing things for God out of their flesh. And the side of it is there was, there was envy and strife and jealousy among them. There were cliques. And so one of the issues Paul addresses, and when they come together to share the Lord's table together, they weren't treating it as the Lord's table. They were treating it as just another, a potluck dinner, basically, what we would relate to. So you'd have one group sitting over here, and they brought, you know, the pasta and the meatballs and the sauce, you know, and all that good stuff. And then you'd have the, the, the people over here with the linguisi, and, the, you know, they, they, they brought their own food, and they didn't share it with each other. And then you had a group here that didn't have any food, and they didn't share it with each other. So they were denying who they were as the body of Christ, and they were being selfish and self-centered, and Paul's addressing that issue. But out of this, we get to see some very importance about this, about this meal, which very often we take for granted. Now, many of you have come from a church tradition that, that, that celebrates the Eucharist, what they call it, every service, and it's, it's a major part of the service, and it's very highly considered. And so what we've done in, in Protestantism is we tend to go the other direction, is we tend to just kind of say, well, this is a nice thing that we do. And I believe the truth is, 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 is closer to what the Catholics do. I don't want to get off into that this morning. and We may a little later on. But the point is we haven't taken it seriously enough. So let's read through this. I'm going to read through this whole thing. And then we're going to go back and talk about what I believe God wants to sh- share with us. We're going to pick up in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, he's talking here about church. Is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? And it's the Lord's Supper. For in eating... 
Each one takes his own supper ahead of the other. Notice we come to eat the Lord's Supper, but they were treating it as their own supper. So each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk in church. My goodness. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now he's going to get into these are the verses we read so often. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So the authority for what he's about to say is a revelation he got directly from Jesus. That the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance cup, cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, this is what I want to look at to begin with, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, that means are dead. I mean, this is an astounding statement. You don't hear it preached very often. But one of the reasons some one of the reasons people get sick and die in some cases is because they don't regard the Lord's table correctly. Wow. So I guess it's not just something we tag on to the end of a service and just say, well, let's get this over. And I've got to be very careful because I can do that because I get going in a message and I remember, oh my goodness, we got communion and my wife's over there trying to remind me and then I kind of, we got to squeeze it in. So I got to deal with it just as much as you do. But, but this is serious. And as I was meditating, well, let me finish reading and I'll come back to that. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, you're not coming to do this to satisfy your appetite. This is a, this is a worship to the Lord. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Verse 34, lest you come together for judgment. The rest I'll set in order when I come. What I want to go back and look at is, it dawned on me Friday in meditating on this, that if Paul is warning them, if you've got the wrong attitude, that's not something to be afraid of, but we're to examine ourselves, examine our attitude towards the body of Christ. And it's literally His body that we're sharing together, but it's also the body of Christ among ourselves because what He's correcting them on is how they relate to one another. He says, you don't come together recognizing you're one body. You are the body of Christ. Instead, you think of yourselves as a bunch of individuals and cliques that come to church and you relate to one another. You don't relate to one another as if you belong together and together you belong to Christ. He says, because of that, you've opened the door to the devil to bring sickness into your life. And for that reason, some of you, have, some people have actually died. And it dawned on me, if the attitude towards this meal is that important, that it can open the door to sickness and disease and can open the door to death, there is a negative power in this meal, then there must also be a positive power in this meal. Because God doesn't do things on the negative. The devil takes what God does in the positive and perverts them to the negative. So what the Apostle Paul is saying 
implying here is every time you come together, there's a tremendous power there present. There's an opportunity, a powerful opportunity, and that you've wasted, and as a result, you've allowed that power to come to the negative. It's like the electricity in your, in your wires in your house. It is power. It is tremendous power, whether it's 110 or 220 for your dryer and things like that, and you've got to use it correctly. And if you use it incorrectly, it'll kill you. It'll destroy you. It'll burn your house down. But it also, because of that power, it has a tremendous potential to do tremendous good, which is what hopefully you're using it for. And so, so the point here is, is there's some, there must be power in this meal together that he's warning them because you've not, you've not considered it correctly. That power is hurting you. On the other hand, we need to discover how that power may work for us. And that's what we're going to look at today. I've read, I've read reports of a number of people in fact, I got a little book at home from a church. I won't go into it because, because you're going to want to go buy the book in the bookstore, and I'm not sure we have it there. But it's a little book about the power, the power of the Lord's table, people healed. And then you've, some of you may be aware of, of Creflo Dollar's recent testimony of his battle with cancer. And, and, there's, a, and a, there's a magazine out now that shares some of it. But I've heard him tell the story, and, and what turned it around for him is he was diagnosed with a very aggressive type of cancer. And what he did is he began, every night before he go to bed, he would take the Lord's table. He would take the bread and the cup, and he would share, he would just take it himself. You, you don't have to be a priest to do it. You don't have to be a pastor to do it, even though he is one. You can do it for yourself. And because it, it doesn't say there's a qualification, you just have to be a believer to do this. And, and, but he meditated. I'm getting kind of ahead of myself. He meditated on meditating on this, and all of a sudden it goes off in him that what Jesus did on that cross healed him. And he was healed now. And if you've not read the story, he went to have an MRI done. And when they did the MRI, they thought they found it in his bones. And then when they checked it again, not only was it not in there, inside of him was a picture of a bearded man that the MRI showed up. See, we think this is just theory and ideas. Amen. Hallelujah. So I think this is worth looking into. I believe that from what we'll learn today, if your heart is right and you, that there's some of you are going to be healed as we share the Lord's table today. Because that's God. I know a story of another man. I know the story of another man. I don't know the man, but I know the story of him. I've heard it told. This man had a terrible skin disease. And, and, and it was, I don't know, it was eczema. I don't remember what it was, but it was a terrible skin disease. And while he was sharing, while he was just standing in church, holding the bread and the cup, just like we do, he began to think about it and to thank God. You know, Father, I thank you that this, this bread represents a body that was broken for me that took stripes on his back by which we're healed, I'm, by which I am healed. So when I eat this bread, I am taking that healing into my body. I'm accepting that healing from my body. And he ate that bread and drank that cup, and he felt something go over him, and whatever that was just fell off of him and his skin became pure like a newborn baby, like that. God's not a respecter of persons. Amen? Amen. Well, let's look at this. What is there about this? Well, the first thing I want to look at is it's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. We already mentioned this distinction. Paul says, this, don't you know this is the Lord's table? This is the Lord's Supper that you're coming together to share, but you're treating it as if it's your own meal. As if the purpose of this was to satisfy the hunger and the appetite of your body. No, the purpose of this is to celebrate something, is to experience something that is very sacred to the Lord. 
So much so that it can be life and death. It can be health or it can be sickness to you. Not because God... Understand, let, let me look carefully. I do not believe for a moment that what Paul is saying is because you have not taken this meal correctly, God's angry at you and he's throwing sickness down from heaven on you. First of all, God doesn't have sickness in heaven. What he's saying is you've opened the door that allows the enemy in. We live in houses so that we can keep the elements out, we can keep the rain out, in the winter we keep the cold out, in the summer we can keep the heat out. But if you leave your doors open and your windows open, you can have a house you're in, but you're not keeping it out. It's going to get in through the openings that you've left. And we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that the Bible tells us is under the leadership of Satan, who is called the God of this world, because Adam surrendered his authority to Satan, and Satan is the God of this world. That's why he came to tempt Jesus. He offered it to him. Jesus wouldn't have been a temptation to Jesus if he didn't have something to offer. And so Satan is the God of this world. But the good news is, and Pastor Michael or somebody quoted it this morning, Pastor Michael did. Yeah, we've been transferred, Colossians 1.13, one of my favorite scriptures, and I thank you for reminding me of it today. We've been delivered. We have been. Not when you get to heaven. We have been delivered, removed, set free from the dominion of darkness, the domain that is the, the, the kingdom where Satan has rule and authority. If you've come to Christ, you have been delivered from his kingdom. And then it goes on to say, and transferred over into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You change kingdoms, you change rulerships, you change authority over your life. Therefore, you change houses. So why would we open the door and let the God of this world in a house that's been delivered? Amen? Amen? All right. But that's what they were doing. And so the first thing is to recognize this is the Lord's Supper. This is sacred. I was listening to a preacher the other day, actually a few weeks ago, and he's talking about they're about to celebrate communion. And, uh, uh, and they did it a little different way. And he said there's a little boy that comes up to him every time they do it. And, and he pulls on his trousers. He's probably like three or four years old. And he was trying to get his attention this time. And the parents were there, and he mumbled something, and the, and the pastor couldn't quite understand it. And he looked at the parents, and because what the little boy was, says, would you, eat, would, you, would you eat God's supper with me? It's he that instituted it, and he instituted it for his purposes. And what's happened here in this church is to the Corinthians, it had become common, and it become for their benefit not for the Lord's benefit. Now, to give you a little background here, uh, we're going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just one chapter to the left. And, and, and to give you a background to what we're about to read, because this is not something that we can understand very easily, because we don't, we don't do this... Well, I'll explain it and you'll see what I mean. Corinth was a pagan city. It was, an, it was a, 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 um, a Greek city, but it was also a Roman colony. And it had, it had a, a temple in there, and, and, and these people that were saved, that were in this church, were saved out of that temple and its practices. And one of the main things that they would do is to worship the, the goddess, I think it was Diana in that case, they worship this goddess by sacrificing animals that they would either raise or they would buy at the market, and they would sacrifice them. They would slit their throats, they would pour the blood out. In some cases, they would drink the blood. And, some, and they would, then when they were done, they would, they would fix, they would roast the, the animal and then they would eat it. And it was all part of worshiping, it was all part of worshiping that God. And, and, and see, we look at 
eating and drinking things like that as well. It's just food. So what spiritual significance can that have? Well, eating and drinking food normally doesn't have a spiritual significance. Listen carefully, unless you give it spiritual significance. I need to say that again for my sake as well as yours because I've never said that before. Eating and drinking food does not normally, does not have on its own a spiritual significance unless you give a spiritual significance to it. See, natural physical things have no power in and of themselves unless we associate them with something spiritual. And I just saw something, I got to, Holy Spirit, bring it back to me. Tangible things in and of themselves have no spiritual meaning. But God in the Old Testament, to communicate spiritual significance, had them do physical things with physical things. So there were certain foods they could eat, certain foods they couldn't eat. And there may have been dietary health reasons for God's selection of that, but one of the major spiritual reasons for was that for them to recognize that they belonged to God. Therefore, they could not do, they belonged, because they belonged to God, they were not their own, and because they were not their own, they could not choose what to eat and what not to eat. And now that we're saved and we're in the new covenant, we think we can eat whatever we want to eat, and what we're going to learn is this body's not my own. But God used the food they ate, He intended to use the food they ate to teach them a spiritual principle. Because nat- that's, what, that's what a type in the Bible is a shadow. It's a physical example. I don't know why I'm using this. It's a physical example of something that has a spiritual significance to it. Because we're so sense-oriented that the only way God can get certain spiritual truths across to us is by taking a physical example and then using it to show us the spiritual principle. I mean, I just used it verbally by talking about your house. Your house is a place you live in, and it is a place, one of its purposes of living in a house is it protects you from the environment out there. It protects you from intruders. But if you leave the doors open, you can be in a house, but you've opened the door to the intruders and to the elements. Now, that's that's a verbal type. That's a verbal example of something we can relate to that's intended, hopefully, to communicate a spiritual principle. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So, because this is nothing spooky or mystical about what we're going to look at. So what they would do is they would, they would part of their worship, they're worshiping, they're worshiping a goddess who doesn't exist. I hope you realize there's no other God up there. God's the only God up there. But there are demons out there. And there is a devil out there. And what Satan wants more than anything is your worship. And he, he doesn't care. I mean, if all you do is complain about him and say the devil's doing this, he, he just likes attention. Because in heaven, most likely, he was in charge of worship in heaven when he was Lucifer. And he became lifted up because of his own beauty. He began to get his eyes on himself, became lifted up of that. And because of that, he began to think he had an importance that he had of his own and a beauty that he, did, he forgot the beauty he had came from God. It wasn't something of his own. And anytime we begin to think anything we have is, is of our own, we're opening our door to the same, the same... This is the point of what we're going to... Well, let me, let me read through with that background. So they were worshiping demons, although they thought they were worshiping go- a goddess. And they were doing it by sacrificing animals and by eating the meat and by drinking their blood. And they were doing that as an act of surrender to that goddess. It's an act of surrender. It's a, it was a sense of communion. 
of sitting, almost like sitting down at a table with her by eating this animal that we're, we've dedicated this animal to you and now we're going to take this animal's body and blood into our own. So we're sharing this with you. Okay, this is what, we'll see how this fits in with what we're talking about here. First Corinthians 10 verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What I just described to you is idolatry. I speak to you as wise men, judging for yourselves what I say. Verse 16. The cup of the blessing, cup of blessing which we bless, that's the communion table we're going to celebrate, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The word communion there is the Greek word koinonia, which means a sharing together, having something in common with. I mean, the, the, the simple classical definition is it's fellowship, two fellows in the same ship. But it means more than that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a union and a sharing of that union together. I, I don't want to get into this too much, but, but marriage, the, the marriage, the way God designed it between a man and a woman, right? The way God designed it between a man, which is, and the only real marriage is the one God designed. The only one things God will back is what He designed. Okay, and God designed it because it, it is the closest thing to a, to a, to, a, to a, a, a spiritual union and a physical union that we can have a, a, a blood covenant that we can know on this side of heaven. And there's a physical act between a f- husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage that God has authorized as the means by which you're producing children. I don't have to draw a picture for you, do I? Okay, all right. Okay, thank you, Lord. Now listen carefully. And that physical act, we're going to see it in here, creates in God's eyes a physical union. But there's already a union there, which is why God authorizes it. And so that physical act is a tangible celebration of a union that God's already created and made. So we have living examples of physical things that celebrate and remind us of and experience a union together. Now remember the issue in this church was they were divided. They were not conscious of their union with one another. It's not just our union with God, it's our union with one another. Paul's going to go on and explain to them, look, you can't be one with God and not one with each other because if we're one with God, we're also by definition one with each other. So just like my hand is in union with my head because we're part of the same body, so my left hand must be in, not because it's in union, because it's part of my body that my head's part of, it's also part of the same body my hand is, so my hand, left hand needs to get along with my right hand. Right? Everybody with me so far? Okay. And that was not happening here. Okay. Let's go read on, and you'll see more what I'm talking about here, or he's talking about here. Verse 16 again. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bled, the bled. <laughs> the bread which we break, is it not the, the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. So he's saying, we're one with each other because our life has come from the same source. So the same, this is in Ephesians 4 talks about the spirit of unity. It says, you know, guard or keep the spirit of unity. Well, you can only guard something you have. So what is the spirit of unity? It's the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's in me is in you. 
And I'm sure you've experienced, or, or maybe you have experienced, I remember I did very early on, this amazing sensation. Once I was saved and I would meet somebody else that's saved that I'd never met before, I would feel a closeness with them that was much different than the closeness I felt with my own family that I knew all my whole life. Why? And I wonder what's going on here. Because what I found to realize, there's an identification on the inside of that same spirit that's in me is in you. That's, oh, and how we need to pray. And, and, and all I can say is, the privilege I have every Sunday, and you, you don't get it, of looking out at this incredible miracle God has done. We have people here from almost 30 different nations, from I don't know how many different races, hugging each other, praying for each other, loving each other, and we have no law that's made us do this. In fact, one of my biggest challenges is after you greet each other is to get you to pull apart and sit back down again. Why? Because there's a spiritual unity here. It's not perfect, but it's there. It's there. And that's what allows God to move, do here. And I believe God wants to bring us to a greater place of unity because it's that unity that opens the door to the spirit of unity to move and do what He does. The, one of the biggest signs of the day of Pentecost is people from different backgrounds came together to worship God together. So unity is one of the signs of the presence of God and the Spirit of God. All right, praise God. Okay. Verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altars? Now what he's talking about here is, because is, those of you in the school of ministry will remember this. In the Old Testament, God, of course, chose His people, the people of Israel. And He chose them in order to have a special relationship with Him as a sign to the rest of the world of what it was like to be in a a covenant relationship with God. And out of that covenant relationship He made with Abraham, when Israel got in trouble in in bondage in Egypt, God rescued them, sent Moses, prepared Moses, uh, called Moses, prepared him and sent him and used him to deliver the people to get them into a land called the Promised Land, a land of blessing they wanted to get to them. In order to get there, they had to go through this desert, this, this, this uh, 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 desert, desert place that they had to go through. And in that process, God instructed Moses to build a church. It's called the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle in the Wilderness. And I wrote a, a, a book on that. It's in the bookstore. Uh, I'm not trying to plug it. I just, it gives you some greater background to this. And, and the, in that Tabernacle... There were several aspects of it. We're not going to go into all those. But the purpose of it is, is so that God in a limited form could dwell among His people. And there was, an, there was a tent in the middle of this that had two rooms. The, outer, the first room, which was larger, was called the Holy Place. And the inner room, called the Holy of Holies, had, it was the place where God's presence would come and dwell. And in that room, there was, there was an article called The Ark of the Covenant. Anybody remember a movie about The Ark of the Covenant? That's what it was about. And God's presence, His tangible presence, would dwell in that room. Now, in the outer room, the, the priests could come in at a certain time, and they would bring in a certain bread called the showbread, S-H-E-W-B-R-A. And it was, that literally means the bread of His presence. And there were special unleavened loaves. There were 12 of them, one for each tribe. And the, the priests would come in there, and on one day of the week, they would eat this bread outside the room where God's presence was. They couldn't go into the room because they'd have died because God's presence was in that room. 
The only one who could go into that room was the high priest on the Day of Atonement, having done all the exercises he was supposed to do, wearing exactly what he was supposed to wear, and he would go in that room having performed everything else because he'd done everything God said, he could go in there and live. And he went in there to pour the blood of the, of the sacrifice on the, on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant. But the rest of them couldn't go in. So they would eat this bread one, one veil curtain away from God's presence. And that was a sign that they couldn't come into God's presence yet. Because what they had done there didn't make them right. It didn't make them perfect. It didn't make them clean. It was a symbolic thing they went through that God could treat temporarily as if it would make them clean. So that's already going more into what I intended to do. That's what he's talking about. But they would eat this bread at the end of the week. Okay, now, verse 20. Rather, that the things the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So what he's saying here is when they eat that animal's flesh and drink that animal's blood in the temple, they're sacrificing, they're worshiping demons. Okay? All right. Rather the things which the Gentiles say, they sacrifice the demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So now he's saying that that worship is having fellowship with them sharing something in common with them. Okay? You cannot, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Oh boy, would that preach. Not just for communion, but for other areas of our life. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons, or you provoke the Lord to jealousy, are we stronger than He is? Now let's go to John chapter 6 and understand a little more of what Jesus is saying to His disciples when He institutes this Last Supper. You know, if a lot of people in church have an image of what Jesus is like, and we have, you know, the, the famous picture with Jesus with his sheep over his shoulders, have, which is a sign of having rescued the, the one lost sheep and, and left the 99 to rescue him. And we see Jesus playing with children, and we see Jesus as this very gentle, you know, gracious guy. And he's the same one that, that overthrew money tables with a whip in the temple. He's the same Jesus that called the, 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 the religious leaders uh, of the devil and whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he, did, he, he offended people. Now, I know we don't do that today. <laughs> Maybe we need to a little more. Jesus, see, we're, we're, it, oh, I can't go here. The devil's trying to intimidate the church that we're afraid to say the truth. But here's the key. It's the truth in love. Jesus shared the truth, but he shared it in love. And love will ha- real love will share the truth, but it will share it in such out of a motive of love. And so as trying to ma- protect everybody's feelings, we're not telling the truth. And that's not love. That's not love. Okay, that's enough of that. Oh, I'll get sidetracked there. Okay. But I wanted that background because Jesus is about to say some tough things here. Verse 31. We're going to skip a little bit here. Now, what's happened is Jesus has just fed a whole bunch of people. 
and this crowd's following him. He went on a boat to cross to the other side, and the crowd went around the end of the lake and came over to the other side to meet him. And, and Jesus is, they're asking for a sign from him. And they said, verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the desert, and it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's the manna that dropped down every morning. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give them that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So he's taking them from the physical bread that he had just fed them to understanding there is a spiritual bread. Bread represents life, the bread of life. Bread is the basic element of food, that, of life. The basic things we need is food and bread, not kind of necessarily the bread we get today, but wholesome bread has ingredients in it that are essential for life. And then, so he's saying that the, that, that the Father, the, just as the Father... God dropped the dew in the morning is what they turned into bread to feed the children of Israel for those 40 years in the wilderness. In the same way, there's a real bread that God has sent down from heaven. He says, Moses didn't send that bread. My father sent that bread to feed his children in the wilderness. In the same way, there is a true bread, a bread of eternal life that my Father has sent down. And just as they had to eat that bread to receive the benefit of it, you have to eat this bread to receive the benefit of it. And I am that bread of life. Well, that got everybody upset. And we're going to have to skip down here for time's sake to verse 48. I am the bread of life if it didn't give them eternal life. This bread which comes down from heaven, that they may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and anyone who eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now what he's saying here is, what's going to bring life to you is I'm going to offer my flesh up for the world. I'm going to offer it up. So they're not going to physically eat his flesh the way they thought he was talking about, but they're going to, he's going to offer it up for them. The Jews, therefore, verse 52, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're still thinking in natural carnal terms. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, real food, and my blood is drink indeed, or true drink. Who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down of heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever." These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. What happens as a result of this is everybody leaves. Jesus knew how to take a crowd and reduce it down to 12. And then he turns to them and says, are you leaving also? And Peter says, well, where else will we go? Which kind of implies they've been thinking about it. 
I mean, suddenly he took this huge, he had an enormous, he had a mega church. He had thousands following him. Oh, oh, John, don't go there. You don't have time. They were following him for the wrong reasons. So you can get a crowd. You can build a big church if you entertain them enough. Oh, I got to be really careful here. You can get a crowd. You can build a big church if you really, if you want to, if you if you feed them what they want. But Jesus told them the truth. There was something. Oh, this is so. There was something eternal at stake here. And Jesus would not allow the temptation to have a huge crowd saying, Oh, you must be the Messiah. This is wonderful. He would not allow that temptation to steal from them the eternal opportunity that He's here to bring. And pastors have to be very careful because we're human. It's very easy to want to to feed people what they want to hear and provide for them what they want so that they'll keep coming back and keep coming back and they'll bring other people, but we're not feeding them the eternal meal because every one of us is going to face eternity. And my responsibility is to help you make sure you're ready for that eternity, not entertain you. And so he says things that made people make choices, and the choices that most of them made was the wrong choice, and his disciples were even wavering. Okay, that was an aside, but boy, that was good. Okay. Now, so what he's talking about is not physically eating his body. Obviously, they couldn't do that. But there's something that takes place when you eat something. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've got to move along quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ha, ha, ha. Verse 15. Now, he's, this is... This is We've kind of been working backwards. We started in 1 Corinthians 11, we did 1 Corinthians 10, and now in 1 Corinthians 6. So this all laid a foundation for what he told them in 11, which is where we started. And I've only selected certain things out of here. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now what's a member? My arms are members of my body, right? A member is something that belongs to it, that's joined to it, that's part of it. So when you join a club to become a member, you, you're joined to that. That's the term. I just never thought of that before. You're joined to that body. That's what a member is. It's something that's joined to that body. We have people come here, but they're not talking about, about uh, uh, sexual immorality here. Or don't you know that he who's joined to a heart, physically joined, is one body with her. That's what I talked about earlier. That physical active union is the creation of one, one body together. Why would you do that with a harlot? For the two, it says, shall become one flesh. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. So we're not physically one body with Him. We're one spirit with Him. So we are in union with Christ spiritually, which is the eternal part of us along with our soul. And, and we, that when you come to Christ, you're joined to Him. The Holy Spirit joins your spirit with His spirit. That's how He can live in you and also be seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, I got a little more time than I thought. Okay. So don't you know 
Verse 17. He who's joined to the Lord. This is all about union. Being one with. Being joined to. Verse 18. But flee sexual immorality. Don't hear that much in church either. Every sin that a man does outside of the body, every sin that a man does, he does outside of the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body because you've joined yourself to somebody that you're not in covenant with. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So don't you know this? Your body, your physical body is the temple, the tabernacle. Just as there was a tabernacle in the wilderness and God's presence came to dwell in there, your body is a tabernacle that God's presence has come to dwell in. And this is going to be the whole point of this new series we're starting on spirit, soul, and body because we do not walk around aware that God lives inside of us, that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us. The power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you right now. And the way I know we don't know that is we couldn't sit still if we really understood that. Nothing would ever threaten us. Fear could have no place. We're one spirit with Him and, we're, and our body is His dwelling place on this earth. Your body is His dwelling place. My body is His dwelling place. So together, we're like different rooms. I just never saw that before. We're different rooms in the same house. Oh, that's good. We're different rooms in the same house. You don't take your den and, and throw it out on some other lot, do you? Because you don't, may not like the smell that's in there or something. It's, you, you take care of it because it's part of your house. This is God's house. Not just this building. We make this God's house. We make this God's house. Oh, John, you've got to move along. Okay. I'll read it again, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and therefore you're not your own? I'm either God's house or I'm my house. That really went over big. Let's read that verse again. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't own your body. You don't own... That's good news. That means God's responsible for it. I remember back when I rented, we rented an apartment or rented a house, something went wrong, you'd pick up the phone and call the landlord, wouldn't you? You got a problem today, you know? The plumbing's not working. You know, I'm going to go to work, but when I come back, I expect you're going to take care because you own this house, you're responsible. Well, when we bought our first house, I realized there was no landlord to call up. I was him. I was it. Because I now own the house. It's now my responsibility. Well, if you're your house, then your body's your responsibility. And that may be why some of you are still not healed. But your body belongs to him. You're the tenant. He's the landlord. So if you're dealing with sickness, call your landlord up. But you see, you can't fool him. You can't say it's his and treat it as yours. And here it is, verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. God came by ownership of your temple legally. He bought it with a price. 
Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. If God wants you to glorify him in his body, why would he want you sick? Why would people think God's brought sickness to me if he's telling... That doesn't glorify him in his body. Oh, I've got to be careful here. Because every time Jesus delivered somebody every time the only time i remember people glorifying god when jesus walked on the earth was when people got healed not when they got sick what glorifies him is when we see that he's come into a situation especially when nobody else could do anything about and he's he's redeemed it he's healed it he's made it whole that's what gives god glory oh i just didn't open that up but that's okay all right now let's go back to first corinthians 11 so what have we said here before we bring, begin, to, begin to bring this to a close. What have we said here? We said, first of all, this is the Lord's table. So there's something sacred about it. Not something we have to be spooky about. There's something that's not something we should be casual about. There must be a power in this somewhere. Because Paul is telling them, the reason some of you are sick and, and even some of you have died is because you're treating this with the wrong attitude. Not to be afraid of it, but to be aware of what we're doing here. That there's, this is power in this. So what we're looking at is, is if, if there's a negative power, there's got to be a positive power in this somewhere. What is it? What does it come from? Well, there's nothing magic in the bread. And I know, again, some of you come from a, the tradition of church where they believe that when, when, when the priest prays over it, that bread literally turns into his body and that wine literally turns into his blood. And I'm not going to get into that issue. That's what a major part of the, of the Reformation, of the Protestant Reformation, was based on that. Where I think we've come to is in some ways I think that tradition has some advantages because at least they treat it as sacred. They treat it as sacred. But the issue here is I believe what the Bible teaches. I'm not going to argue with anybody because it's not something to argue about. What I believe is what I said before is that there's nothing spiritual in the bread itself and in the grape juice that's in that cup. It's the heart of what we're doing with it. Because what Paul was telling them, because if you read on, we didn't have time to do that, if you read on in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul now talks about sitting down at a supper and somebody eats, says, you know, was that, was that, is that lamb chop? Did that come from the, did that come from the service this morning over at the temple? And Paul's going to say, look, I know that, that, that I can eat any kind of food because my conscience is clean because I know that, that there's no power in that food one way or another. But if my brother asks me, obviously it's bothering him, therefore I will not eat the meat. And I said, well, aren't these two contradictory? No. The first scriptures we read talks about in the church, in the temple in that case, what they were doing with that meat in the temple. They were eating that meat not to satisfy their stomach. They were eating that meat not to, not to f- feed their body. They were eating that meat as an act of worship to a demon or to an idol, but it was a demon that's behind that. So if he says, because you were using it for that, that's idolatry. But to just eat that, to, to go to the marketplace, I mean, so when you, if you go to, you know, your favorite restaurant after this, you don't have to ask them, you know, did this steak come, where did it come from, okay? You may want to ask for other reasons, but you have to ask for that reason. So here's the point. What Paul's saying is, don't you understand that, that what you're doing is you are, you are taking something here that is sacred and the attitude you have towards this is wrong. It's treating Christ as common. Just as what you used to do at the temple 
was using that food to worship idols, you're, you, we're, you, you're, we're taking this bread and you're using this to treat Christ as common. And you're not taking advantage of what it really represents. Because what it represents is our covenant. Because what does Jesus say about it? Jesus says, this, take this bread. Remember me. This is the covenant. This is a new covenant. Take this cup. It's the cup of a new covenant. And we don't have time to go there today. I have a whole course I did on this. Covenant is where, is where two parties come to, committed to the other person at the sacrifice of their life if they fail to do it. In a blood covenant, you would, you would enter into a blood covenant with other, another family, another tribe, another nation, and it was cut by blood. Blood was shed. And that showed how solemn it was. And literally you were pledging everything I am, everything I have, I'm pledging to you because we're now one. So whatever you need, I've pledged to give you. And that's the basis of marriage. If more people understood that, we wouldn't have the divorce rate that we have. And what God did with Christ is enter into a blood covenant with man. Abraham's covenant was the precursor to it. But I don't have time to go through the scriptures. But it's a covenant that God entered into man with man. A blood covenant. Sealed in the blood of His Son. Sinless Son. The benefits of a covenant is we become one with Him. That's why I went back and read. Don't you know you're one spirit with Him? You are one with Him. Now, what's the other side of covenant? The other side of covenant is, and two parties enter into it, everything they have is mine. They're already committed when you enter the covenant the two parties have already committed that whatever you need, I will give it to you if I have it, even at the cost of my life. That commitment is made at the time the covenant is cut. Anybody with me? God cut a covenant with us 2,000 years ago when blood flowed from that cross the blood of a sinless lamb, the blood of a sinless son flowed. God cut a covenant by which He said, I am making, this is astonishing, God would make Himself one with man. He can't make us one with His flesh because God doesn't wear the kind of flesh we wear, but He is a spirit. God is a spirit. We have a spirit. He's made us one spirit with Him. And that spirit can dwell in our bodies. So Jesus was signifying, in order to have this life, you've got to eat this bread, just as you eat the bread that ate, the bread of the manna, and that became one with him, you've got to eat me. What happened to your breakfast this morning? The part of it that stayed there is now part of you. The ham sandwich you'll have for lunch, if you don't exercise it off, it'll maybe over here tomorrow, it may be over here tomorrow, it'll be somewhere. Why? Because that food, that bread, became one with your body. So what we're about to do in just a couple of moments is we're about to share together a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice. There's no power in that little piece of bread. There's no power in that grape juice. It's Welch's grape juice, I think. And I'd have forgotten where we get the bread, okay? But it's what we do with that. It's what's in our heart when we take that that makes all the difference in the world. 
And the reason I spent this time is to go through it so you would have the opportunity to recognize that when you eat that bread, there's nothing magic in the bread, but if you see everything, everything we receive from God comes by grace on His side, it's received by faith. So what you believe is happening when you eat that bread determines what you can receive. This is why many of you have had it for years and it didn't do anything for you because you weren't believing something for it because you didn't have an understanding of what it meant. The power of this meal is the power of the union that God has made with you and me. Romans 8.32 says, If he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all things? What do you need this morning? What is the real need of your life? Is it healing in your body? Is it to be restored in your soul? What is your need today? We're not going to take Christ into us, but we're reminding ourselves and we're reminding Him and declaring Him. We're worshiping what He's done for us, that He has joined Himself to us. And everything He is and has is ours at His disposal, at our disposal. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word You've given to us today, the truth. And we ask you to open the eyes of our understanding and help us to see with our inner man what you've done for us today. As we're preparing to share the Lord's table today, Father, help us to recognize what it is we need and to know that we can come with tremendous confidence to you, not in the bread or in the cup, but in the commitment that you made to us on Calvary when you did not withhold your own son. And so we ask you by the power of the Spirit to make what we're about to do here real in Jesus' name.